Thank you so much, Chip. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Hope everyone had a wonderful time and I slaved over a hot stove. Fresh direct. They're wonderful. My wife cooked the turkey, though. But, uh, can we turn to Revelation chapter 14? Revelation chapter 14. And before I start, let me just pray. Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord, and we thank you for this time of worship around your word, Lord God, because this is worship, Lord, as we open up our hearts and hear from the Spirit what the Spirit has to say to this church today, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that your word would come forth with power and conviction, God, that we would get a glimpse of what Brian prayed, God, that we would be raptured up into the heavenly place, into the holy of holies, and see Christ, and see where we're going to spend eternity, God, with Christ, the Lamb, around the throne, worshiping and praising you. Lord, help us to understand that whatever we're going through down here is only temporal, Lord God, that this is not reality, heaven is reality, the new Jerusalem coming down is reality. Right now we're pilgrims walking through, God, a strange land, Lord, so let us not get our tent pegs too deep, Lord. But let us be responsible as we're here, God, being salt and light. We're not escapists, Lord. We're salt and light in this world, God. So help us, Father, to live righteously until you come back. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 14. Sorry, got a brand new Bible and pages stick together. Um, How many read the book of Revelation on a regular basis? I see two hands. How many have read the book of Revelation in the last year? Okay, that's good. How many completely understand the book of Revelation? How many get after chapter 3 and just shut the book? It gets confusing, doesn't it? The book of Revelation can be a very, very confusing book. And uh, hopefully today, what I want to do before we get into the text, is I want to give you a little brief background of the historical context of the book. But I also want to give you maybe a little tool that will help us all read the book of Revelation a little better. Um, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John when he was banished on the island of Patmos. And the book was written at around the year 95-96 AD. That's debated. That's probably around the right time. Um, John wrote to seven churches located in the Ro Roman province of Asia Minor. These churches were located in cities that were steeped in Greco-Roman culture. And that culture was steeped in paganism. It had a plethora of gods, goddesses temples, sensual pleasure, diversity was celebrated as king, intolerance was squashed immediately. Um, kind of sounds like today, right? Um, they had to face a lot of challenges living in the Roman Empire in the first century. One of the main uh, forms of worship was called the imperial cult. The imperial cult is basically emperor worship. Christianity was considered a Jewish sect in the beginning of its uh, birth. But eventually Christianity began to split from Judaism. Remember in the beginning as you read the book of Acts, Christians are worshipping where? In the temple. And so 
the Rome, Romans considered Christianity just a sect of Judaism. Well, if you read the Bible, you know the Jews were very stubborn and hard-headed people. And the Romans knew that. So the Romans said, listen, if we try to get these people to pinch salt to Caesar, we're just going to have a hard time. So you know what? They don't have to do it. They're dismissed. They don't have to worship Caesar. It'll keep peace. So Christians were considered Jews, and guess what? They didn't have to pinch salt to Caesar either, or bow and say Caesar, Caesar is Lord. But as time went on, Christianity became separate. And they realized, wait a second, Christianity is a whole different religion. So no longer did they have that cover of protection. And so now Christians were forced to bow to Caesar, pinch a little salt on the fire, and say Caesar is Lord. Well, you know, as a Christian, we can't do that. And so they faced the temptation of, of bowing to Caesar. And if you, you didn't, you were in big trouble. Caesar said, hey, listen, in these neck of the woods, you bow to Caesar. Not to some Jewish carpenter who was crucified. Caesar is Lord. They also faced problems in employment. How many belong to a union? Anyone belong to a union? You have to pay your dues, right? Well, they had trade guilds. And trade guilds, if you were a carpenter, you had to join that trade guild in order to work. And if you didn't join that trade guild, guess what? You couldn't work in that town. And guess what your dues was? You had to sacrifice to the God of that trade guild. And if you didn't, you would offend that God, and maybe the economy would go tank up and you, you wouldn't work. So they were very superstitious. They worshipped idols. And in order to be a carpenter, you had to join that trade guild. And in, in order to work, buy and sell and trade, does that sound familiar? You've read that somewhere in the book of Revelation? They couldn't buy or sell. They had to belong to that trade guild in order to do that. Now, that's a temptation. Here I am, a first century Christian. I have four kids. they got to eat. What do I do? In the church of Thyatira, you read in the first few chapters of Revelation, somebody was teaching that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. What happened? False teacher came in the church and said, listen, you can join a trade deal. You can sacrifice to idols. You love Jesus. It's only a pinch of salt. It really doesn't matter. So there was compromise and temptation to give in or to be faithful to Jesus. They also struggled with idolatry. They worshipped everything under the sun. You know, your God was your God, Richie. My God's my God. Don't talk about my God. I won't talk about your God. Everyone's God. Hey, I'm okay. You're okay. Well, in Christianity, guess what? Jesus was the only Lord and the only God. And that was very offensive to people. And that caused a lot of problems. So they were constantly at war with the gover government, Rome, Right? With the trade guilds and with the culture. And this went very hard for them. And so as you read the book of Revelation, you see that the first three chapters is dealing with the first century church in that context. And then when you get to chapter 4, it seems like the book changes. You see now these visions and you see these creatures and these strange beasts. Well, as you're reading the book of Revelation... There are three characters that the church has to deal with continually throughout the book of Revelation. How many have read about the beast in the book of Revelation? You read about the beast, right? The beast represents all governments and rulers that are opposed to God's people throughout history. Not specifically 
in certain time periods. Though they do have to do with certain time periods. But remember, this is a symbolic book, as we'll see. False prophet. We hear about the false prophet. Well, false prophets are any religious system or false teachers infiltrating the church throughout all Christian history. And then the prostitute. How many read about the whore or the prostitute in Revelation chapter 17 and 18? She sits on the beast with seven heads who sits on seven hills. This again is symbolic. We don't want to read that literally because she's sitting on seven hills. She's a very large woman. And it just doesn't work. But they're very small hills. You know? So this is a symbolic book. As you read through the book of Revelation, you'll see these characters over and over and over again. And they're always opposing God's people. But you know who's behind these three characters? The dragon. And who's that? Satan, the serpent of old. And he uses the beast, the false prophet, and the prostitute to try to destroy God's people. He wants to kill God's people. He wants to oppose everything God is doing through the church. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we come to what's called the apocalypse. Has anyone ever heard that word, apocalypse? Remember the movie, Apocalypse Now. When you think of apocalypse, what do you think of? You think of anarchy and chaos, right? Well, that's not what the word means. How many have seen The Wizard of Oz? Remember when she's walking up to the machine, and it's the great wizard, and there's smoke, and it's scary. And remember what Toto does. He runs to the curtain, and he what? Apocalypse. He pulls back the curtain, unveils the curtain. That's what the word apocalypse means. It means a pulling back of the curtain. And what did they see? This weak, fragile man acting like he's a big deal. Flip it around. In Revelation, they were facing the beast, the Roman government. He didn't mess with the Roman government. They were facing uh, the, the prostitute, Babylon, which is the world, the temptations of lust and sensuality and violence. And they were facing the false prophet. And it seemed like everything was against them. But in Revelation, what God does, he pulls back the veil and he shows that not a weak man is behind the scenes, but the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is sitting on the throne in chapters 4 and 5. And you see the Lamb on the throne. And you see, wait a second, for people who are suffering, they get a picture that, you know what? This down here is temporal. God is in control. Revelation tells us what we see is really not how it is. Revelation gives us a peek behind the curtain and shows us that God is sitting on the throne and Christ is the one who breaks open the seven seals. Remember reading about that? So all the judgments that you see in Revelation, all of the things that go on in the book of Revelation, Jesus is controlling them. So the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot, guess who's controlling them? Jesus is controlling them. God is in control. This is not a cosmic war of God fighting the devil. God doesn't fight the devil. The church fights the devil. Martin Luther said it best. The devil is God's devil. Yet he's still a devil. And the book of Revelation gives us hope. Now, the book of Revelation does this through what's called apocalyptic literature. It's a genre or type of literature that's unique 
And in order to read Revelation correctly, we have to have a little understanding of what apocalyptic literature is. I'll give you a brief, basic, easy definition. It's highly symbolic. So when you're reading Revelation, the main genre, everyone knows what genre means, style of literature, is apocalyptic, it's symbolic. And do you read symbolic literally? Different literature. If I said, once upon a time in a world well far away, would you read that as a literal story? If I said, Joe Mack in 1962 was a New York police officer, would you read that as a literal story? So we read genres differently. This is a genre that we do not want to read literally. Yet there are some literal aspects within it. But the majority of the book is symbolic. Number two, it's a message from God given through the mediation of an angelic being to a human. Where was John? On the island of Patmos. Jesus came and gave a message through his angel to give to John. Right? It uses imagery and symbolism to present spiritual truths. We see numbers in the book of Revelation. The number seven, the number four, the number three, the number twelve, and the number thousand. All over the book, they have specific meanings. We see animals. We see a lamb, a lion, horses, beasts, a dragon, locusts, frogs, talking eagles. When was the last time you saw a talking eagle? Right? We don't want to read that literally. We see symbols, seals, scrolls, trumpets, bowls, and we see people. We see false prophets, prostitutes, a woman, two angels, witnesses. Some of these are literal and some are symbolic. When you read about Jesus, God, Satan, Michael the Archangel, John, those are literal. We're talking about real people in the book of Revelation. But when you read about the beast, the false prophet, the woman, the prostitute, the two witnesses, the frogs, the locusts. Those are all symbolic. Like I said, when was the last time you started talking evil? You need help. <laughs> the message of apocalyptic... What's the message of apocalyptic literature? It says this. Your earthly situation is only temporal. It's transitory. What you're going through right now, it's not the real... This is not eternity. This is temporal. It gives you a veil, opens up the veil and lets you see into eternity. The message is one that is meant to bring hope to an oppressed people by revealing to them the cataclysmic destruction of their oppressors who are currently persecuting them. God is sovereign. He's the sovereign ruler and in complete control and will bring every wicked deed and action to judgment. A literal reading of apocalyptic literature will lead you to an erroneous reading of the book of Revelation. The correct way to read Revelation is symbolically and literally when necessary. The book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. So we don't read from 4 and then chapter 5 happens next and then chapter 6 happens next and then 7 and 8. It's written one story of judgment and salvation told over seven different times. So when you're reading through, it's like you see Jesus coming back like a few times here. Once he's on the clouds, then he's on a horse, then he comes again. And so what it's doing is telling the same story over from a different angle. We have Mets fans and Yankee fans, right? When you watch a game, does the TV only have one camera? Or do you watch, sometimes you're watching from the home plate. So you get a perspective of the game from the home plate. 
And then it switches to the pitcher's mound. And you're seeing the same game, but now you're seeing it from a different view. And then they have the center field camera. And then you get a panoramic view of the field. And then they have the first base camera. So when you're watching a game, you're seeing it from seven or eight or nine different angles, but it's the same game. When we read the Gospels, do you go out and say, do you know Jesus was crucified four times? Why? Well, because John, he was crucified in the Gospel of John, then Matthew, he was crucified. No. We have four Gospels that give us four different eyewitness accounts of the same event with little different twists. That's what Revelation is. And that's how we read Revelation. And by reading it that way, which I believe is the correct way, we avoid all the fanciful predictions of who the Antichrist is and, you know, what color hair did he have and he's going to have a 666 here or on the back of his leg or, you know, who's the beast and the harlot and predicting end time events and, you know, now it's the four blood red moons and 9-11 was witnessed and Isaiah prophesied about New York and, I mean, just it goes on and on and on. But when we read the book correctly, we realize that the book was written to Christians who were suffering. The book was written to give Christians who were suffering hope in every age. And the message of the book is two words. Jesus wins. That's the message of Revelation. And that's a message needed for people who are going through tribulation and trial. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think Revelation is probably the least preached or studied book in America today? Because we're not suffering. We're not going through trials and tribulations. I bet you if you preach this in Iran or Iraq or China, they would be jumping up and down screaming hallelujah because we're giving them hope and showing them Jesus. But listen, we also go through our trials and tribulations, don't we? We might not be persecuted in the sense of we're being beaten for our faith, but we're being ridiculed, ostracized. You know, we live in a, like, like Lot, he lived in a, a wicked generation and the spirit was grieved every day living around wicked people. So in a sense, we are going through our own tribulation. So we don't want to make light of that. And we don't want to put a guilt trip because I'm not suffering. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not getting beat. I'm not a Christian. No, we don't want to try to go out and get persecuted. Trust me. Praise God. But whatever we're going through, this book is for us. You can read Revelation this way. It's a story of two cities. The city of God and the city of Babylon. The story of two women, the whore and the bride. The whore being Babylon, the bride being the church. A story of two marks, the mark of God or the mark of the beast. Revelation is a book of hope to all God's people through every age who are experiencing trials and tribulations, sufferings and persecutions. It shows us that Jesus wins now let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to start reading from verse 1. You guys understand? Yes. Do you have a better understanding of Revelation? Yes. Amen. Think symbolically, okay? Otherwise we're going to have some problems here. <laughs> then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with 144,000 who had the name of his father who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing 
on their harps. Listen to the language. You'll hear this word a lot. Like. Like. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was no lie found, for they were blameless. Then I saw another angel, then I saw, flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives a mark on its name. And I believe this next verse is the whole center and purpose of the book of Revelation. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So here we see two cities. We see heavenly Mount Zion and we see Babylon. We see those who have the mark of God on where? Their forehead. And we see those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead or their hand. We see two women. We see the prostitute and we see the bride. This scenario is played out over and over in the book of Revelation. Either you bear the mark of Christ or you bear the mark of the beast. You are either a citizen of Mount Zion or a citizen of the world, Babylon. Revelation is a call to discipleship. It's a call of endurance for the saints of all ages who are living in Babylon. It's a call to the faithful who daily face the beast in their day, which is the governments and powers that oppose God. The false prophets of their day, false religious systems and false teachers infiltrating the church. The prostitute of their day, all of the sensuality and greed and sexual seduction and violence that the world tries to inundate into our minds and lives. Behind these lies Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old. And the bottom line, Revelation is saying, listen, whose side are you on? Are you on the side that gives allegiance to the lamb? Or are you on the side that gives allegiance to the dragon? Revelation is very cut and dry. Either you're a citizen of Babylon or you're a citizen of Zion. 
Either you worship the beast or you worship the lamb. Either you have the mark of God or you have the mark of the beast. There's no middle ground in Revelation. It's very clear. Chapter 14 displays a contrast between Zion and Babylon, between saints and sinners, the mark of God, the mark of the beast. Look at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. He says, then I looked. We see throughout Revelation, John saying, then I looked, then I saw. Then I heard. When we hear that, that's a market to say, okay, John is about to tell us something new. He's seeing a new vision, something new. Well, now John is saying, look, then I looked. And he looked up and he saw a throne. And he saw a lamb. And I love this. Who's the lamb? He said, I saw a lamb. And the lamb was what? Standing. Jesus is the lamb that was what? Slain for the sins of the world. But he's not slain anymore. The lamb is now standing. He's resurrected. He's now in heaven. He's now the king of kings and lord of lords. The lamb is ruling now in heaven. Jesus Christ is ruling now. He's alive. He's in control. Death could not keep him down. We worship a risen savior. The lamb is alive. He's not dead anymore. And then I love this. Where were they worshipping? Where, where is this scene? Mount Zion. Is that physical Mount Zion in Israel? When you hear Mount Zion, it wasn't a big mountain, it was like a little hill. But is it the physical Mount Zion? Well, no, it can't be. Why? He said, because, number one, the Lamb is there. Is, is Jesus here today? Was Jesus in that day on earth? No, he was in heaven, right? It says, they were before the elders and the four beasts worshipping. If you look in Revelation chapter 4, we won't go there, you will see a vision of God. And guess who is flying around the throne singing praises to God? And every time they begin to sing praises, the elders fell down and began to worship. The four beasts. Though this is clearly in heaven. What John is seeing is a vision of heaven. He's opening up the eyes and pulling back the veil to show people in first century Roman Empire who are struggling and suffering, look, Jesus is on the throne. Not Caesar... Right? It's temporal. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's on a throne. And if you're faithful, you know where you're going to be one day? Part of that 144,000. Together with them, worshipping the Lamb. Well, who are the 144,000? The Jehovah Witnesses would tell us that those are literal, that's a literal number. 144,000. And they're in heaven. And so if you're a Jehovah Witness, you don't get to go to heaven. Because it's already filled. Like heaven has a capacity, you know, it has a sign, 144,000, you know, it's a, the fire department, and Patty Mack will come and you know, start picking people out, I'm sorry, you oversee your capacity here, no, 144,000 is symbolic, but where do they come up with that number for, how do they come up with that number, how many tribes were in Israel, 12, how many apostles did Jesus have, what's 12 times 12? Not 144. 12 times 12 is 44, right? 12 times 144, right? Yeah, help me here. 144. So where do we get 144,000? Remember I said there's numbers in Revelation that are symbolic? The number 10 is a symbolic number for completeness. Completeness. In, uh, I believe it's the church of Sardis, 
He said, you're going to be thrown in prison and suffer for 10 days, but be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. How long is 10 days? Not literal. It was complete. You're going to suffer completely and then die, but you're going to be faithful. Well, a thousand is just 10 times 10 times 10 times whatever is a thousand. So a thousand means a completeness. Let me ask you a question. Do we want to read that literally? A thousand. God owns the cattle on a thousand hill. Who owns the rest? (laughs) It's a symbolic number for completeness. God owns everything. So 12 times 12 times a thousand, what is that? It represents all of God's people in the old covenant, in the new covenant, throughout all eternity, the full amount of the elect, the people of God through every generation. So when we look up and we see that number, that's the complete number of the people of God that are going to be saved throughout all history. And guess what? We're in that number. If you're a Christian, you're in that number. And one day we're going to be there worshiping the Lamb. So that's what 144,000. Verse 4. It is these that have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Okay, this is nothing against women. You know, a lot of people don't like this verse. Oh, what do you got against women? Women are dirty. No. No. What is he saying here? They didn't defile themselves with women. They are virgins. So are the 144,000 just men then? Because they didn't defile themselves with women... And what about men who are not virgins? Symbolically. Remember? Symbolically. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What does it mean here when they are, they haven't defiled themselves with women, and they're virgins, it means they're spiritually pure. They haven't given over to idolatry. They haven't worshipped the beast. They haven't given in to Babylon and seductions of the world. They're living a holy life. They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're clean, and they're worshipping Christ alone. So it has nothing to do with women or being a virgin. If you're married and you're a virgin, that's a serious problem. Something's not right. So virginity is not a requirement for heaven. And if you're not married, there's always forgiveness in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. God is always merciful to forgive. And so these are those who remain faithful and did not practice idolatry. They didn't give in to seduction of the false teachers who tried to allure God's people into idolatry. Verse 6. Now the scene changes. It goes from heaven, and now the scene changes now. We were just in heaven, and now it comes back to earth. And listen to what it says. The scene switches from heaven, and now it comes to earth. And now we see three angels, and these three angels have a message. In heaven, we saw the heavenly Zion, where the saints are secure, they're singing around the throne, they're worshiping God, they're loving Jesus, right? And it's a place where the triune God reigns and rules. But now they come back to earth, where the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and the prostitute live, and it seems like they're the ones running the show. But remember, what it seems like, It's not reality. God is running the show. So we see the first angel, 14 verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. And those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. 
The message of the gospel continues to go out in the midst of tribulation and trials and struggles. No matter how bad it gets, guess what? You can never stop the gospel from going forward. The gospel goes out to every tongue, every tribe, every language, every people. But not through angels. Remember, symbolically. Angel means what? Messenger. The gospel goes out through us in this room. Through the church. We're the ones that preach the gospel. It's the church militant. We saw the church triumphant in heaven. They were the church in heaven that won the battle. They're in heaven. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they're the church triumphant. Well, on earth, we're the church militant. We're still fighting this battle. We're still in the mud here. We're still fighting temptation. And we're still crying out to God. Give me strength, Lord. We're church militant. But our job is not just a defensive... If a football team only played off uh, defense, would they win? Seems like the Giants are only playing defense, right? They wouldn't win. Why? Because in order to win, you have to have an offensive game as well. The church should be defensive. We should be defensive against false teaching, against worldliness, against seduction. But we need to be offensive. And what's our offense? Our offense is not to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. Our offense is not to try to figure out all this stuff. Our offense is to preach the gospel. No matter what we're going through, no matter how bad it gets, our job is to be faithful to the message of the gospel and preach the gospel. When we read the book of Revelations and we see the judgments, preach the gospel. When people tell us, oh, this end is getting near, okay, let's do what we're supposed to do. Preach the gospel. And it's a call for us to be faithful to the gospel. And then who is it preached to? Those who dwell on the face of the earth. That term, dwell on the face of the earth, it depicts people who are at ease. They're just chilling out. They're at ease, they're clueless that impending judgment is about to happen. They have no clue that they're in big trouble. They're enjoying life, they're drinking out of a cup of Babylon, they're just having a good time. They're clueless that one day they're going to stand before God and give an account to their life. So this gospel message goes out into the bars of Bay Ridge where people are getting drunk and drunk on Babylon, into our workplace, into schools, right? Into family members on Thanksgiving, right? We try to our best to say, Lord, open up a door. I want to preach the gospel. These people are drunk on Babylon and they're clueless. They don't even realize they're in big trouble. And our heart burns and we want to preach to them. Verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, the angel, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heavens and the earth. The call is to worship God alone. Not the beast, not the false prophet, not the harlot, but God alone. But here, at the same time when this angel is flying around, proclaiming, directly above it says, read that, proclaiming what? The eternal gospel. At the same time, remember parallelism. This book is telling different stories. If you look at Revelation 8.13, we have a talking eagle. Remember we talked about a talking eagle? We have an eagle flying directly above. And while the angel is preaching the gospel, we have an eagle saying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. 
at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we have one angel preaching the gospel, and we have an eagle flying overhead, proclaiming woe, saying judgment is coming. So God, we see the kindness of God and the severity of God. We see God pouring out judgment, and while God is pouring out judgment, there's always a hand of mercy where God's reaching out, saving people as judgment is being poured out. God is always reaching out in mercy, saying, repent, turn to me, repent, believe in the gospel, repent. Yes, judgment is coming. Yes, it's going to get bad, but please repent. God is crying out, the church is crying out, the angels crying out, the eternal gospel. Repent. Jesus was calling down woes on Jerusalem. And at the same time, he was weeping for them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets. So there's a call for preaching the gospel, but there's also a call to warn people that judgment is coming. The second angel, verse 8, another angel, a second followed him. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made nations drink of the wine of the passion of a sexual immorality. Why the urgency to preach the gospel? Because Babylon is fallen. Where is Babylon? It doesn't exist. It was destroyed in 600 years before this was written. So where, where is Babylon? Babylon is symbolic of all the world's empires and nations that are drunk on sexuality and violence and oppose God's people. So we're living in Babylon. How many believe that we're living in Babylon? This is not our home. We're pilgrims and strangers. And so look around. Babylon has fallen, it says. Not it's going to fall. It already has fallen. We're living in Babylon, and guess what? It already has fallen. Look around. Where is the great Roman Empire? Haven't you read about the Roman Empire that ruled the world? They're fallen. Where is the great Ottoman Empire? How many ever heard of the Ottoman Empire? They spread Islam through almost all of Europe. Where are they today? Fallen. Where is the great empire of Japan that ruled Asia in World War II? They're gone. Where is the great empire of the Third Reich, Germany, that ruled all of Europe in World War II? They're gone, right? Where is the British Empire, which was said of the British Empire? How many know the saying of the British Empire? The sun never sets on the British Empire. FYI, the sun just set. <laughs> Go look at the map. It's this big. Every empire has its day. America, the superpower today. One day, guess what? If God doesn't come back, America's going to have a table. Who knows when? I'm not prophesying anything. I'm just looking at history. <laughs> Every empire has its day. So, they all represent Babylon, and Babylon is falling. Revelation 17, 1 and 2. The one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of, the, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And then 17, 5 and 6. And, one of, and on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Babylon represents all of the sensuality and sexuality and violence. And it's opposed to the people of God. And God is going to judge it. 
Babylon is going to fall. In fact, it's already fallen. Jesus already defeated Babylon on the cross. It's just a matter of time now. It's like D-Day. We won the war. It took a little while after that to get everything under control. But the war was won on D-Day. Jesus already... Listen. How many believe Jesus is going to come back to rule and reign one day? No. Jesus is ruling and reigning today. He's not coming back to rule and reign. He is already ruling and reigning. Jesus has already conquered. We're not fighting from a position of defeat. We fight from a position of victory. The victory of the Lamb who has overcome and conquered. That gives me hope. That gives me hope. When I look around and see this world falling apart. and Praise God. Thank you, Lord. The call is to flee Babylon, to escape impending judgment. What does the message of Revelation say to Christians today? When you see the warning of impending judgment, what does it tell us to do? When we see the signs of the times, do we make charts and tell people what's going to happen? Or do we preach the gospel? We preach the gospel. The third angel. This gets a little hot right now. This is the, the word of God. People don't like this message today. And another angel, verse 9 to 12. A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on its forehead or hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and with sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise up forever and ever, And they will have no rest day and night. These worshippers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call to the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God. And their faith in Jesus. God's judgment will fall upon all who are marked with the mark of the beast. It's not a physical mark. We're marked by what we worship. Either by God or by Satan. Just as the mark of the foreheads of those in heaven... It's not a literal mark. Neither is the mark of the beast. The movie 666 is on the back of his head. The, the, the computer chip with the tattoos. Brothers and sisters, that's not how we read Revelation. The mark, could it be a physical mark? Maybe, I doubt it. We're marked by what we worship. We become like what we worship. What's the goal of God in Christian's life? To do what to us? To conform us into the image of Jesus. What's the goal of the beast and the false? To conform us to their image. So when I worship something, I'm marked. Paul says, mark those who cause division. You know, it's not a physical mark. Paul didn't say, go up and put a tattoo on them. You're a troublemaker. Look, you know. So it's symbolic. And we're marked. We become what we worship. Whether it's God or whether it's the beast. So here's the contrast we see. And everyone who worships the beast, they end up where the beast in Babylon goes, which is eternal conscience torment of hell. It's not a very popular message today. And it's one you should preach very humbly because it's a very serious thing that people that I love, loved ones I know, might end up in hell. It's a very sobering message, but it's one we need to hear. We need to hear. We need to pray for our loved ones. Like never before, God have mercy on us. We need to be preaching the gospel, not making up charts. I'm sorry. 
We really need to be preaching the gospel to them and praying that God would have mercy on them. So here's the contrast. Those in Zion, they are marked with the mark of God. In verse 1, those in Babylon, they're marked with the mark of the beast. Verse 9 and 11. Why the forehead and head and hand? Because when we worship, we begin to do those things. Action. And we begin to think the way they think. So it symbolizes the way we think and what we do. We're mimicking the beast that we serve. Those in Zion worship God and the Lamb, and they sing praises of God to the Lamb. Those in Babylon worship the beast and sing the praises of Babylon. Prosperity, self-gratification, violence, sexual freedom. Sounds like today, right? Those in Zion have not defiled themselves with sexual sin and are pure. Those in Babylon have drunk the wine of a sexual immorality and violence. Those in Zion are at eternal peace. As the incense of their praise arises before the throne in the presence of God and the Lamb. Those in Babylon have no rest day and night. And the smoke of their torment will rise up forever and ever in the presence of the angels and of the Lamb. I once heard someone say, hell is the absence of God. It's not true. God is the one pouring out his wrath. On his enemies for all eternity. And the smoke of their torment will rise up in the presence of angels and wrath. I don't understand it all. But God is the one pouring out his wrath. God is active in his judgment against sin. So here's a call for endurance for the saints. He who keeps the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here's the purpose of the book of Revelation. It's for the endurance of the saints who find themselves in Babylon. Who find themselves tempted to give in. I need a job. But they want me to do this. And if I don't do it, I won't get the job. And it's not right. But what am I going to do? i got to feed my kids. Alright, I'll do it. I love Jesus. He understands. Giving in. We live in Babylon. And the temptation to stand up for Jesus on the job. You know? Might come a day when you have to sign a document. Listen. Sign this document. Well, what's the document? Saying you, have, you, you support same-sex marriage. And Brian and John, if you don't marry same-sex couples, you're going to go to jail. Is that far-fetched what I just said? Don't you think that that's what we're heading towards? We're living in Babylon. What are we going to do? Are we going to give in? Or are we going to look up and say, Jesus is on the phone. Lord, I'll follow you. And that's what I love. It says those in Babylon and those in Zion, they follow the Lamb wherever He went. And guess where the Lamb sometimes goes? To the cross. And sometimes we go to the cross. So in closing, to the Christian, this is a call to endurance. To be faithful unto death. He said, and I will give you the crown of life. But when I escapists, coming out of Babylon, the call to come out, doesn't mean coming out of the world. How do we come out of the world? We're not going to hide in the backwoods of Kentucky, Kentucky on a farm and stockpile food and wait around for the rapture to come. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to occupy. The best place to be found, if they said, and we could know it, and said, Jesus is coming in a week, you know what I would do different? Nothing. I would just tell more people, I'd go to work, I'd love my wife, I'd come to, I'd be found what God called me to do. And when he finds us and he comes, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We should just be doing what God called us to do and not get caught up in all the hysteria of end times madness. 
Be faithful in the local church. Be a faithful husband. Be faithful on your job. Do the things that God called us to do. That's the best place to be found when Jesus comes back. And for the sinner, it's a call to repentance. Believe in the gospel. Escape the wrath that is coming. Listen, Babylon is falling. Are you putting your hope in the governments to fix the social problems of the world? I got news for you. Babylon is falling. Are you looking for pleasure in this world along 3rd Avenue bars? Looking for sexual pleasures to fulfill your lust? I have, I have news for you. Babylon is falling. Those things, the Bible says, come out from her, my people, lest you partake in her deeds and partake in her punishments. God is not going to be mocked. I can say I'm a Christian all day long, but if I'm continually living in Babylon, and there's been no change in my life, but I'm drinking the cup of fornication and sexual idolatry and rage and anger, and coming here into church and lift my hands, and when I leave, I'm living in Babylon, we need a wake-up call. We need a serious wake-up call. And we need to examine ourselves, like the Apostle Paul said, to see if we're really in the faith. Because what a tragedy to live our life thinking that we're in Mount Zion. And when we stand before Jesus, we hear those words. Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice sin. You who live in Babylon. So, with the call of judgment, the gospel is still going out today. The gospel call is going out for all of us today. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're living in Babylon. If you're not living in Mount Zion, you're living in Babylon. And Babylon is falling. But the gospel is going forth. And you know what the gospel is? The gospel is very simple. It's the eternal gospel. God offers to those who would come to him in faith the great exchange. What is that? What God does is say, he took his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life under the law for 33 years, obeyed God completely. And then he took the sins of the whole world. No, only of those who would come and believe in him. Only those who would say, yes, I repent, I believe. He took their sins and placed them on Christ. And then on Calvary, God poured out the cup of his wrath that we've been reading out. The full cup of God's wrath he poured out on his son Jesus. To punish him for his sin? No. For our sin. For my sin. For your sin. And so now Jesus paid the full price. God's cup was empty. There's no more wrath to be poured out because God's wrath was empty for sin of those who would come. And so God says, repent. Put your faith in Jesus. Come out of Babylon. Confess you're a sinner. Look to Jesus Christ. Don't look to your church. Don't look to your denomination. Don't look that you were baptized. Don't look to anything but to Christ alone as your only hope for your Savior. And put your faith in Him. And what God does is He takes the perfect life of Christ and that perfect record that He lived and He applies it to your account. And now when God looks down and sees us, do you know what He sees? Perfect holiness. Wait, wait. Me? Yes, me. 
perfect holiness. Why? Because I'm good? No, because he sees Christ and his perfect life. And my sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He takes your sins and throws them into the depths of the sea to remember them no more. Now, we know God can't forget. But God chooses not to hold them against you any longer. You might have been drinking from the cup of Babylon for years. You might have had your fill of sexual immorality and violence and anger. It doesn't matter. The call is still going out today. Repent and believe in the gospel. For the Christian, this is a call for endurance. Remain on track. Look above. It's not as bad as it seems. Jesus wins. To the sinner, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. What can I say, Lord? Your word said it all. Father, I pray for those who don't know you in this room right now, Lord. And I pray that they would, right now, God, cry out to you in their heart and say, Lord, save me. How could you refuse anyone who says that, Lord? Save me, Lord. Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. You would never refuse anyone who came in faith crying out for mercy and forgiveness. So I pray that you would put in their hearts today that cry, God, that call, that they would hear the gospel call, that they would repent and put their faith in Jesus, that they might have a perfect record before you, that they would come out of Babylon and become one of the 144,000 who are standing before the throne of God. It's never too late to come out of Babylon, Lord. It's never too late, but one day the clock will stop ticking and judgment day comes and then it's too late. So I just pray, God, that you would work in the hearts. Lord, work in the hearts of our family members, Lord. The people we've been praying for for years, God. Lord, and we see they're, they're dwelling on the earth. They're clueless, Lord. God, wake them up. Have mercy on them. Save them, Lord. We're crying out to you for our loved ones, God, that you would save them. Our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our mothers, our nieces, our nephews. God, have mercy and save our loved ones, Lord God. And I pray for the believers, God, those who might be going through trials and tribulations right now who feel like throwing in the towel, who feel like compromising their faith because they don't see another way out. God, that you would give them the strength to endure, for he who endures until the end shall be saved. That's not self-effort, that's Holy Spirit empowerment. So Lord, I pray, Father, that you would strengthen your church right here, sonship, Lord, and that we would not give in to Babylon but that we would continually worship around the throne and join that number of the 144,000. In Jesus' name.